0: Since uh, high school, I have dabbled with film and short films and making videos, producing videos, editing videos and um, I guess you know if I were to consider a career path for people that don 't have um, thick skin, being a pastor and a, uh, a filmmaker are two that you should not be a part of if you do not have thick skin. I have learned that and uh, one of the things about this whole filmmaking journey is, is you're, you're critiqued by a lot of people. Uh, some people have weight in what they say. Some people don't. And so you really learn, and I hope you've learned this. I'm learning it now that not everybody's words are worth the same weight. Do you know that? Do you know that for sure not everybody's words carry the same weight, and they shouldn't carry the same weight with you? Um, and, and what I mean by that is in, the, in, in filmmaking and when you throw a video out there and it 's on the internets and the you know the, the webs and all of that different technology stuff people it 's open now for people to comment and make remarks about well about eight seven or eight years ago, um, somebody introduced me to a filmmaker who really was kind of on the forefront of the DSLR camera revolution, and he was a guy who Really was, and for those of you that don't know what that means, it simply means those cameras that take photos, they also take videos. So um, that's what it means. And so it was a real simple way for us to shoot really high quality videos with cameras that already take pictures, and, and it, was a, it was a lower cost and allowed some people who just didn't have money to get into this thing. And so we started doing it. So I got my first one uh, a little bit after finding him as a filmmaker. And um, I just really started respecting his stuff. Everything he was doing, I, was, I mean, Brian Worthy and I went to one of his workshops in Atlanta. We got to hear him, hear him speak and get to, got to see how he does everything. And every year in November, he does a uh, thing, a fundraiser uh, in the UK, because that's where he's from. Uh, he does a UK fundraiser for uh, uh, prostate cancer awareness. And it's November there. It's No Shave November here. And so we, I just thought it would be an awesome idea to like make these videos because that's kind of what we did. And you submit these videos and everything. So I, I wrote this script and I, I did a storyboard for it. I grabbed some of you folks and we made this video called "December Beard Cometh." The idea was that in November men cry as the end of the month arrives because December 1st means you have to shave everything off. Well, we were just saying, hey, forget about that. Don't worry. Don't shave. Just keep it going because beard is here. Completely ridiculous idea. Well, uh, one day, it was just kind of amazing to me. We submitted this film to his contest or whatever. And uh, lo and behold, I go to the video and there is a comment from someone on this film. And I want you to see it because it it meant a lot to me as a filmmaker, his words being on on my video, saying, nicely shot, great idea, completely bonkers, of course. I'm telling you, I was freaking out a little bit. Like, I was sitting there going, he said, nicely shot. A guy who I uh, admire the way he shoots everything told me that when I shot was nicely shot. He told me it was a great idea. And he told me it was completely bonkers though. And I loved it. All I wanted Philip Bloom was to tell me was how good it was when I shot it and that it was a ridiculous idea. That's all I ever wanted in life. Now, of course, you know, this video is out on other YouTube channels, Vimeo in different places. And there are people who've Who have posted comments about it, and they've said things, and they're like, I would have done this if I had thought about it, and I had done this. And so what I do is I usually click on their names to see what they've done of their own. You know where I'm going with this, and they've never made a video in their entire life. They've never produced or uploaded a video in their entire life, but troller's going to troll, right? Troller's going to troll. And if you don't know what that means, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's not... Not that important. But what I mean by this morning, and and I hope that you'll understand, is not everyone's words should carry the same weight in your life. And as we've been talking about the Beatitudes and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I'd love for you to consider with me this morning who is speaking to us. And in Colossians chapter 1, we have an understanding of who is speaking to us. Colossians chapter 1 says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else and He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is His body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. See, the unique position of a Christ follower is Jesus is God or he is nothing. I want you to understand that. There's a popular idea out there that, well, Jesus is a good teacher. No, he's not, because he said he was God. And if he's not God, and he says he is, and people still want to put him in a good teacher category, that would make me go, why would you believe a liar? Why would you take any of his... Well, take what's good and take what's bad and you know, throw out what you... No, absolutely not. Jesus is either God or he is nothing. Well, maybe he was crazy and he li- really did think he was God, but we don't see evidence of a crazy person. What we see is children loving, a man, loving being around this man, women looking at him and, and wanting to be his followers, and, and men going, I want to follow this man. We never, crazy people tend to give themselves away at some point. And if therapists and psychologists would be honest, a lot of their self, self-help techniques are just paraphrases of the Sermon on the Mount. So we don't see a crazy person. Jesus is either God or he is nothing. It is the unique position that a Christ follower finds himself in going, he is either everything he says he is or I don't want anything to do with him. To to, to pick and choose with Jesus is destructive. And so this morning, I would love for you to consider that these words that we're looking at are spoken to us by God. God. And he does not mince words. He didn't. Jesus never said too much. He never said too little. He never retracted a statement. He never said something and started over again. And what I meant to say was, Jesus did not say anything extra. And he didn't leave anything out. He spoke his word to us. Not as a man or a lyricist worthy of quoting or the guy who was the right guy for the job. But he revealed truth to the people sitting around that mountain that day, and that same truth is revealed to us today. And as a Christ follower, we believe that his words, life and death, hang in the balance of what we do with his words. So that being said, and we don't do this here all the time, but would you guys stand with me as we read the Beatitudes Sometimes I just need to be reminded of who's speaking to us. And so this morning, as we just read the Beatitudes, remember, in Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I thank you for the blood of Christ that covers the unbelief in my heart when I read this and I forget who's speaking. Thank you for simple reminders that it is you who chose to reveal yourself to us. You gave up your privacy, your right to do whatever you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, so that an unholy broken people like us could have a clue about what you're up to. Give us a love and an understanding of your word that it would shape us, that it would break us, that it would invite us to walk in the truth that's revealed here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, Last week we talked about how the Beatitudes really are a bizarre way of thinking about the world. If we're honest with ourselves, what we speak about the Beatitudes is that we say, well, my idea of, well, I don't think poor in spirit can actually be happy because the people that I typically see that have everything that they want are the ones who step on other people who are very prideful and they just get their way. Jesus introduced us to another way and it was the poor in spirit, understanding I am spiritually bankrupt before God. It's not just about trying to be poor in spirit or humble before people. It's understanding first and foremost that I am bankrupt before God, that I cannot do enough or bring anything to the table to earn anything from God, specifically salvation, being made right, being made whole. I cannot do anything of my own. And Jesus says that happy are those who get that because the kingdom is theirs. God gives the kingdom to people who are poor in spirit, not rich in pride. And so, this week, Jesus does not claim, nor should we assume, that Christians are all laughs all the time, giggles, high fives, and fist bumps. The truth be told, there are such things as Christian tears. And they are not cried enough, in my opinion. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, this just doesn't compute, does it? Like, I came up with a workaround this week while I was reading this. Like, I came up with a way... For this to not have to be a reality, because I don't like mourning. I don't like weeping. I was just like, okay, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, God, you're obviously busy, you've got a lot of people to take care of, so how about this? You take me off your comfort list by not having me mourn, right? Right? Am I right? If I don't mourn, then you don't have to extend yourself to comfort me, so it's a win-win for both of us. You can comfort those that really need it. I just won't mourn over here. Like, that's really what we're kind of thinking. We don't want to mourn. And as soon as mourning comes, good grief, we want it gone yesterday. We want to escape mourning. We want to cover mourning up with pills, with booze, with food, with masks. We want to control it, drown it, ignore it. We want to take it out back and shoot it. That's what we want. Because ultimately we see sorrow, in Jesus' words, can be the source of blessing. The way to happiness is, long pause, sadness. Happy are the unhappy. It doesn't make sense. But I'm sitting here going, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he has done all that, that we see the scriptures say that he has done, then his words carry huge implications now to mourn and Sue touched on this a little bit you guys can see the definition that as I was looking through and trying to figure out how this is worded and what it truly means because sometimes I don't think we understand what mourning means it means to be swallowed by sadness to feel grief or sorrow to feel sadness and express it through vocalizations and tears This type of of mourning is described all through Scripture. In James chapter 4, it's as if James is paraphrasing this beatitude, this Sermon on the Mount. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. In honor, this type of mourning is not just like a. eh, It's not just a you know kind of a. But it is. It's the ugly cry. That's what it is. As Sue was talking about, just the the visible mourning and weeping that is a just a response of something so deep, so internal that it just comes out. And it's shocking to people. It's uncomfortable to people. Because it's something that's in us that comes out and just shocks the world. Because as I said, we try and cover it all up. We want to run from it, we want to mask it, we don't want it to come out. But this morning, I wanted to make clear to you what we are not mourning. In Jesus' words, we are not mourning the loss of any temporary comfort. My house, my money. I know there are some of you in this room that would weep really, really deeply and loudly if you lost your money. There's sadness that does come over us. There's mourning that we see in the scripture. We see God comforting people when they lose things and loved ones and different things like that. We do see that all through scripture. He comes near to the brokenhearted. hearted. He, he picks them up. He holds them close. This type of mourning Is in the scriptures, and I do believe that God comes very close to His people when we mourn the loss of something or some stuff. We're not mourning the loss of our personal reputation. We're not mourning the loss that, oh man, my 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 reputation's on the line, or my I've lost something, so now people are gonna think something of me. We're not mourning that we got caught in sin. I think for most of us, that's why we mourn, is we got caught. Something's got to change, and so now we're mourning, and we're sad, because we can't keep doing what we once were. We're not mourning that we did a bad thing. I shouldn't have done that. And we're not mourning that we let ourselves down. I think sometimes we run to that because we've set this standard for ourselves, and we we mourn that, oh man, I did something out of my character. I shouldn't have done that. And now we're sad about that. We're not mourning that we let ourselves down. What we are mourning, and when I look at Jesus' words here, specifically in this context, we are mourning what our sin cost the Father. We are mourning our self-righteousness. We are mourning the effects of sin in the world. This is a mourning that I do not know if we as the church are familiar with. And I'll tell you why I don't know if we're familiar with it in just a minute. But if I'm looking at the big picture, Jesus is speaking of those who who mourn the loss of our innocence. We look at the garden and we recognize what we have lost because of sin. We've lost the righteousness that God has alone. We're realizing that we are in desperate need of what he has. And I'm not mourning that God knows all my secret sin that I'm currently involved in. I'm not mourning the consequences of my sin. I want you to know that. There's very specific mourning going on, and it has nothing to do with the consequences that I'm experiencing because of my sin. It's deeper than that. My mourning is a result of seeing God's holiness and understanding what I lack. In Isaiah chapter 6, there is a picture of this type of mourning. And I believe it's a picture that shows up all through Scripture, but I believe this one just, I mean, it nails it. It shows exactly the response of understanding God's holiness and then who we are in that same picture. And uh, Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah was not what people would consider a bad dude, you know. People looked at him as he was a guy who spoke for the Lord, he delivered the Lord's messages. And here we have in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's experience seeing the Lord. And starting in verse 1, he says, it was, in the key, it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings, With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, Isaiah speaking, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. So here's the picture. God is seen in his rightful state, not as some weak, senile, grandfatherly man walking up to the edge of heaven with his walker, sticking his horn in his ear, going, Wonder what those crazy kids down there are doing right now. But he's seen for who he is. He's seen in all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his bigness, if you will. And it was totally unlike anything we have seen or experienced. And it was shaking. Isaiah did not approach God with a high five, a head nod, a fist bump, a what's up? Jesus, you're my homeboy. But it was approaching him and seeing him for who God really is and being shook to the core because Isaiah began to despair. Isaiah began to weep. Isaiah confessed out loud, I am done, and so is everyone else for that matter. And I want you to know something. Did God tell Isaiah he was done? Did God say anything to Isaiah in what we just read? No. God did not look at Isaiah and say, you are a terrible person, Isaiah. You have have filthy lips. You have filthy, filthy lips and you live among people who have filthy, filthy lips. And Isaiah was like, oh yeah, you're right. I forgot. No, Isaiah's response to seeing God for who he truly is was it's over. I am done. I am a man with unclean lips and I live among people with unclean lips so we might as well just turn it all in because we're finished. But the story doesn't stop there. One of those winged creatures takes takes this burning coal from this altar of sacrifice, brings it, and touches Isaiah right on his face, right on the source of his sin, of his confessed sin, and he presses that hot coal on his face. He says, look, your sins are forgiven. You see, grace didn't start in the New Testament with Jesus. Grace is the story of God, the rescue of a God who loves us and will not let us go off into death. But he has a plan to rescue us. But here's the thing that bothers us the most. It's his rescue plan, not ours. And his rescue comes when we mourn what we have lost and what we lack in relationship to who God is. When Isaiah saw his sin, he was broken over it and he despaired over it. But God met him and comforted him with the truest kind of comfort, knowing that I have been made right with God. And so again, what are we mourning over? We are mourning over our sin. Jesus' words are for the individual. An individual mourning and a very individual comfort. The primary mourner should be me. Me. The greatest definition I've ever heard of accountability, when, and I know that's a word that some of us shudder at in this church because they typically are shame groups, <laughs> that's really what they are, what haven't you done, what haven't you measured up to, what haven't you done this, 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 and that. One of the greatest definitions of men who hold ac- men accountable is this, if there's a group of men that I'm walking with to know that the only sin that they hate more than my sin is their own. These are people you want to surround yourself with, men and women who want to walk with you, and they they do hate your sin, but you know whose sin they hate more? Their own. This mourning is an individual mourning. It is you and I going, my sin, that's why Jesus had to die, not our sin. There's a big difference between our and my. My is taking ownership. My is not just kind of fluffing it off as somebody else has done this. Somebody else is the reason for this. But it's me taking a very real look at myself and going, my sin is the reason Christ had to come and die. Um, There was a newspaper that wanted to have some people write their opinions about what is wrong with the world. And many of you know who G.K. Chesterton is, and I love How cynical and sarcastic of a writer he is. Brilliant. I love the way he writes and he thinks. And this newspaper reached out to G.K. Chesterton and said, would you be willing to write a piece for this What's Wrong with the World article we'd like to put out? And Chesterton responded to the newspaper with these very few words. He says, Dear Sir, regarding your article What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly G.K. Chesterton. This is what we must do before we mourn the sins of others, or we consider the sins of others, is we must weep and mourn over our own sins. We must come face to face with our own. You and I must come to the understanding that it's because of our rebellion against God, our desire for glory, our desire to impress the world, that the world feels the effects of sin and death. And more than mourning, that... I believe we're supposed to mourn our own righteous efforts. You know why? Because when we're standing on our own righteousness, we're making very little of what Jesus has done. And I hope that breaks our hearts as Christ followers. You and I are to mourn our own righteous attempts to make ourselves right with God. We are to mourn the fact that we have tried to do more or add to or even take away from what Jesus has done. I hope it breaks our hearts. We are to mourn our own sin. But secondly, I think we mourn the sin of the world. And I start with my own sin, but what moves me to mourn over sin in general There are those who are still ravaged by all the effects of sin. Mourning over suffering, oppression of children and women, sex trafficking, abuse, the unjust treatment of those without a voice, the death of millions and millions of unborn children for the sake of convenience. We mourn and we weep. This is very different than condemning and pointing fingers. You may be outraged by sin as we should, but are you outraged enough to weep over it? Are you outraged over sin enough to vocalize and to, in tears, weep over the sin of the world? In the 1800s, there was an English social reformer named Anthony Ashley Cooper. He was the seventh lord of Shaftesbury. And uh, he was a man who worked to end the exploitation of children as labor. He reformed harsh conditions. Uh, And now, because of his beginning works in the 1800s, there are labor laws that are very intense in the UK. But his story started, uh, he grew up in an abusive uh, relationship with his father. And the the nanny in the house would take him to a gospel-centered church. And he heard the gospel as a child and he responded to it. That's where he came to faith. And uh, there was a story that he tells that this was the beginning of his calling to be a social reformer. He was walking through the streets with his nanny, and on the streets there was a pauper's funeral going by, a very poor person's funeral coming through the streets. And they stopped to you know, pay their respects, but the coffin was shoddily made. It was made out of a box, and you could see through the cracks, and you could see the guy in the box. And it was on a hand-drawn cart. It wasn't even being pulled through the streets on a horse, but it, there were four guys pulling this, this cart and what made this worse was these men were completely drunk. All of them totally drunk, stumbling down the street, pulling this box with their dead friend on this cart. They were singing vulgar songs really loud. They were telling terrible stories about the man in the box. And as he was pulling this cart up the hill towards the graveyard, was where, which was where all the people who did not have anything were buried... they were pulling it up the hill in their drunken stupor, this cart falls over and the coffin bursts open onto the ground and the man's body just rolls out. And what would be shocking to most people in the right frame of mind, these four men began bursting out into laughter, just laughing uncontrollably at what was a very depressing scene. And he writes in his journal, When I grow up, I'm going to use my life to see that such things will not happen. Laughter over things that are despairing caused him to go, This can't continue. This cannot be allowed. This must not be allowed to go on. Things have to change. But it started with mourning over sin, his, and then seeing the effects of it on the world. for For the Christ follower, our longing to see relief brought to the destitute situations is a response to our own brokenness and a desire for others to know the comfort of the Father. But unfortunately, many Christ followers have allowed the culture to determine what they believe, that they are more offended by what's found in Scripture rather than being offended and broken over the sin of our culture. We live in a society in the church today where people are more offended by what they read in Scripture than what they are seeing in the culture and hearing from the culture. So do you think we will ever mourn appropriately if we have an inaccurate view of God and sin? No. It's it's the reason we don't mourn in the church. It's the reason we don't weep vocally and fall on our faces because we're more offended by what God might suggest would be true than what the culture says should be true. And this should not be. This is backwards. And if we continue this direction, we will not mourn our sin, nor will we mourn the sin of the world. You know, the gospel tells us that Jesus wept twice in his ministry, once at the unbelief at the tomb of Lazarus. Yeah, he cried because his friend had passed, but if you read in the scripture, in the text, there was a lot of unbelief and hard hearts in the description. And Jesus was weeping at the hard-heartedness the second was, the other time was over Jerusalem. Over the and hard-heartedness and hard and the sin of Jerusalem. And if Jesus weeps at sin and unbelief in the world, and Jesus had no sin, then we weep over the sin in the world. If it breaks His heart, it breaks ours. And lastly, we, we weep over what our sin has done to the Savior. There's a phrase in Christian understanding called gospel grief. And it's this unique tension that we live in, understanding the depth of our sin, but because our focus is Jesus, we look at Him on the cross, we understand what it cost the Father, but now, because of what Jesus has done, we are more sure of our pardon than ever before. This is gospel grief. Knowing what it cost the Father, but knowing how free we have been set. Knowing what it cost Jesus, his life laid down so that he could take it back up again, he offered it so that we might have ours. I bring nothing to the table of this rescue plan. I, you, bring nothing to the table for this rescue plan except the sin that needed to be paid for. It's really hard to be arrogant and proud when you know all you have thrown into the equation is the sin that needed to be paid for. And what does our comfort look like? Ephesians chapter 1 says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son, There is unspeakable joy in knowing that your sin has not just been covered, but has been taken away. The penalty for our rebellion against God has been removed because of Jesus. This is our first, our lasting, our forever comfort. Not only has he removed the penalty of sin, but he's removed its power over us. Do you know that? Do you know that by His presence and His power, He has removed the the power of sin in our life because there is a new power that has moved in, His Spirit. So we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are, according to the Scripture, slaves to righteousness. We can now be fully on servants for God. To know that it's taken care of, that I have new desires because of what He's done. And in Revelation 21, at Christ's return, the removal of all sin and its effects forever. In Revelation 21, this is what we read. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. I hope you know that for the Christ follower, the hope for eternity is to be with him. There may be some of you in this room who you want heaven, but you don't want the God of heaven. And my prayer and my hope is that that changes and that you see the cross for what it is and what he's done and that you would long to be with him because that is the hope of eternity. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And I love that that would be in there. Like, you got to write this down because John's probably like, what in the world is going? Hey, write this down. This is this is trustworthy and true. Don't you stand there in awe right now. You write this down. You can be in awe later, but you write this down right now. And he also said, it is finished Remember that phrase? Remember that phrase? It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to all who are thirsty. I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Understand this. The comfort of God is God himself. I told you last, last week that God's not standing up making it rain Blessings and kingdom of heaven. God's not looking to just hand out some things. He himself is our comfort. Now, as our, as the band comes and we, we close with some worship, and just to be able to fix our gaze and our, and our hearts, some of you in this room may need to sit, some of you may need to stand, some of you may need to lay flat on the, on the ground. I don't know how you want to respond. I know that we want to invite people to be able to respond as the Lord is moving. But don't be surprised if there are Christ followers in times of worship who don't have their hands raised or are sitting and have their heads in their hands. Because sometimes you just have to sit. And it is good, it is good to mourn our sin. You know why? because it's God's kindness leading us to repentance. When the Lord is pointing out and the Lord is causing us to see the effects of our sin, it is his kindness, not his shaming. You see, the enemy wants to shame and cause you to run from him. And here's the thing, if your sin causes you to want to run from God, you may be listening to the wrong voice because come, come. You sinners, return to me is the invitation. Jesus has invited us to return to him. You know, Judas, many of you know, betrayed Jesus, but I don't know if you know of the remorse Judas felt. In Matthew 27, this is the description. When, Jesus, when Judas, who had betrayed him, Jesus, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. See, in in these verses, Judas saw his sin for what it was. He admitted it. He saw it condemn Jesus. He returned the silver even. And he even claimed that Jesus was an innocent man, but... Judas did not see Jesus' death as being something for him. Judas didn't see the grace, the mercy, the love of Christ for him on the cross. And because of his guilt being too much to bear, it crushed him. There was another man, another disciple that betrayed Jesus. Many of you remember Peter? Always stick your foot in your mouth, Peter. And I mentioned gospel grief to you. Peter displayed this type of mourning. After boasting about how he would never deny or leave Jesus, and then Jesus predicted Peter's coming failure, we see Peter's response in Matthew 26. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you've ever known me. And he went away weeping bitterly. The thoughts of denying the one who would take away the sins of the world, I mean, that's a loud crying That is a loud weeping. But Peter did what he knew. He went back to fishing. And as Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus stood on the beach, and we see this encounter with Peter, Peter hears Jesus, jumps off the boat, and runs to Jesus. Having only known denial at this point, thinking, I've got unfinished business with Jesus, Jesus welcomes him into a meal. And we see that he's given three opportunities to say that he loves Jesus. There are many significant things to that phrasing, but Jesus invited Peter back. And I don't know if you continue reading in that, comment, that, that, that section in the scripture. I don't know if you notice, but Jesus actually lets Peter know that he is going to die for his faith. If you keep reading, Jesus lets Peter know, you won't deny me when it counts next time you're actually going to die for for your faith. For Peter's heart, this had to be huge. This is gospel grief. Mourning over our sin and knowing what it costs the Father, but also knowing the comfort of the Father through Christ Jesus. And as we close this morning, you know, there may be some of you who are questioning, have I ever mourned my sin? You've got to look at Jesus. You can't just go, oh, I'm going to mourn my sin because I'm a terrible person. Oh, I'm just going to cry a lot and I'm going to weep a lot. No, it's, it's deeper than that. It's an understanding of what our sin cost the Father, but also knowing that he purchased for us a, a, a sure freedom in what Christ has done. And so this morning as we respond, there's going to be some elders and some jail leaders standing over there that if you'd like to be prayed for in these moments, you are more than welcome to. They, they want to pray for you. They're ready to pray for you. Not nobody's going to make you feel anything out or anything, but if you're just in a place where you just, I need to be prayed for in this moment. This whole mourning thing has stirred things, and there's stuff, an unconfessed sin in my life that I just need to repent of. I need to, I need to speak it out, or I, need to, I just need you to pray for me. Please feel free for that. And I'll be standing over here, and if, if you're at a place where you're like, I've, I've never mourned my sin, I've never been poor in spirit, I don't know anything about this. But I think God's stirring something. in me, and I'm not sure what it is or what to do with it. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to encourage you, talk with you, invite you to coffee because it's not a 30-second conversation. It's a whole life journey towards Jesus. And it's, it's everything that it's cracked up to be. Ups and downs. But to know the comfort, the blessing of God as God himself comes close to those who mourn. Jesus, thank you for loving us. And I ask that in these moments you would, you would comfort your people. God, we are not a people who are just all laughs and and fake, shiny, happy people, but we are people who mourn our sin. We mourn the sin of this world. And I pray that you would cause us to understand what gospel grief looks like, that it is not focused on us, but because we've looked at Jesus, because we continue to look at Jesus, we are very aware of our sin. But we are so much more aware of our Savior. It's in your name we pray all these things.